Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Glad you're joining us today. Here on this podcast, we talk about things from the perspective of the Christian left. We talk politics, we talk philosophy, we talk theology from the perspective of the Christian left. And so today we're going to cover a few news stories of the day. We're going to talk about the death penalty. And then we're going to do a brief profile on the Swiss theologian Karl Barth and talk about his involvement with the left and with socialism during his time. Just to start out, a couple of news stories. Just today, new unemployment numbers came out. They were eagerly anticipated. And they revealed that last week there was an additional 6.6 million unemployment claims. That brings the number up to 17 million new unemployment claims in the last three weeks. 17 million in three weeks. New York Times is reporting today that real unemployment is higher than any time since the Great Depression. And Fortune put out an article similar. It said that real unemployment is probably now 14.7%, which is the highest since 1940. So we know that our politicians are doing a lot of things to, or have done some things to try to alleviate some of the burden of unemployment. And if you're in that situation, uh, maybe you're familiar with some of those things. And if not, hopefully some of those things will will help. Uh, one of the things that they've done is to add an additional $600 to each unemployment check that's going out. And that's $600 per week. I've heard that some people have wondered, is it $600 overall that you get if you're unemployed? It's not overall, it's $600 per week. And I actually confirmed with the unemployment office that's retroactive going back to, I believe, March 28th. If you've been on unemployment since then, $600 additional per week. So it's great that our politicians are doing something to try to help those that are unemployed. I don't know that it's enough. I think maybe more has to be done. And this really raises two issues, though. Uh, first of all, it raises the issue of we need to be sure that we have politicians in place that are in solidarity with the working class. There's a lot of people out there that simply cannot afford to be unemployed, even for a week, and certainly not for a month. There was a statistic out there that said just some tiny number of people, very small number, maybe it's only only half or something of Americans, can afford even a $400 emergency expense. So a lot of people are panicking right now. We need to have politicians who are in solidarity with the working class because we have a lot of politicians out there who are, are totally fine with going a month without a paycheck. Not that they have to but they have enough money that they're perfectly fine going a long time without a paycheck. And they're not like you and me. They're not like us. We need to be sure to put people in office who are like us in that way. And if you're a person like that and you're a working class person, you're struggling to get by, I'd encourage you to run. If you ever had a thought of running, you need to run because we need to have people that are in solidarity with the working class in office. And the second issue to bring up in, in relation to this is it's, it's great that politicians are trying to do something for those who are unemployed, 
during this time. But what about people that are not unemployed just during this time, but that are going to be unemployed a year from now after this is all over? What's going to be done for them? I know that in uh, New Hampshire, that's the state that I live in, the maximum unemployment benefit is $427 per week. You can't raise a family on that. If a single, uh, if a wage earner, head of family, head of household, if that's the only wage earner in the house, loses his job, he's in trouble, only making four twenty-seven. And so we need to really think seriously about why is it that we're taking this issue of unemployment seriously right now, but not we weren't doing it six months ago. And we probably won't be a year from now when this is all over. The problems and the suffering that's brought about by unemployment happens all the time. It's not just during a crisis. So a second story today that I wanted to talk about is a lady named Emily Maitlis. She's a correspondent for BBC. And she did a great segment on the way that the coronavirus is impacting the poor and and really in general is just unequal in the way that it's impacting people. We have this myth out there that that the coronavirus and national uh, and worldwide disasters is kind of a great leveler and affects us all in the same way. And it's not true. That's never been true. So let's listen to what Emily has had to say, a very controversial video that's gotten different reactions from across the spectrum. But let's hear Emily Maitlis, BBC. Hello, good evening. The language around COVID-19 has sometimes felt trite and misleading. You do not survive the illness through fortitude and strength of character, whatever the Prime Minister's colleagues will tell us. And the disease is not a great leveller, the consequences of which everyone, rich or poor, suffers the same. This is a myth which needs debunking. Those serving on the front line right now, bus drivers and shelf stackers, nurses, care home workers, hospital staff and shopkeepers are disproportionately the lower paid members of our workforce. They are more likely to catch the disease because they are more exposed. Those who live in tower blocks and small flats will find the lockdown tougher. Those in manual jobs will be unable to work from home. This is a health issue with huge ramifications for social welfare, and it's a welfare issue with huge ramifications for public health. Tonight, as France goes into recession and the World Trade Organization warns the pandemic could provoke the deepest economic downturn of our lifetimes, we ask what kind of social settlement might need to be put in place to stop the inequality becoming even more stark. So she said it well. This is an issue that is not immune to the issues of class. The issue of coronavirus, the way that it affects people, is dependent in large part on class. The lower class is suffering through this disproportionately more in the ways that she just laid out than those who have more. Those who have more have the ability, once again, to go for a while without a paycheck. They can hunker down in their private homes where they're far enough away from other people that they don't have to worry about it. So this is a class issue. And again, it's a reason why we need people in office who have solidarity with those of us who are in the working class. When times like these come, and just in general, we need people who understand. So let's be sure during this time, uh, we want to fight politically. 
for people who support the working class. And we also want to, in our personal lives, look out for other people who are, are like us or maybe even less advantaged than, than we are. They're being very hardly hit by this uh, virus. Take a look around, see people in your life. Maybe uh, if you have something to spare, might, might need something, might need help, might need a, a leg up. The fact that some people don't agree with what she said is baffling. It's self-evidently true that this affects those who are in lower classes, middle class, more so than those who are in upper classes. Final thing when it comes to news, for some reason, I don't know why, it seems like national disasters bring out the crazy in Christians, some Christians. So we've seen uh, different Christian pastors, for example, have been arrested because they've refused to accept government lockdown orders. And I saw a video uh, from Kenneth Copeland that some of you might have seen recently, too, that probably takes the cake as far as how over-the-top crazy it is. So let's watch this video, Kenneth Copeland. This is how Kenneth Copeland is reacting to the coronavirus crisis. COVID-19! COVID-19! I blow the wind of God on you. You are destroyed forever. You are, you are destroyed, destroyed forever. And you will never be back. And you will never, never be back. I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. Oh, I execute judgment on you, <laughs> Satan. You destroyer. You killer. You get out. You break your power. You get off this nation. I demand Amen. judgment on you. I demand. Oh, I demand. I demand. A vaccination to come immediately. Yes. So a few issues with Kenneth Copeland's response to COVID-19. Why does he think that his breath is the wind of God? I don't even know what the wind of God is, but if there is such a thing as the wind of God, it seems like claiming that your breath is it is slightly arrogant. Second, why does he think along the same line that he's able to pronounce judgment over COVID-19? Third, his prophecy didn't come true because he said he prophesied COVID-19 was over and it's not over. So it sounds like he's a false prophet. Uh, and fourth, and this is the most important thing because all the other stuff is just is just silly so I could probably overlook it. And I mean, I believe in prayer. I think uh, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, I'm sure you do too. You believe that we should pray about the situation and that God can do something about it in response to our prayers. And I can kind of overlook the stuff that he said. It's a little bit quirky, a little bit laughable. But the fourth thing is, is, he, is that all that he's doing? Does he really think that being a follower of Christ in the time of great suffering, worldwide suffering, does he really think being a follower of Christ in, those, in these kind of times, what it calls for is 
a prophetic pronouncement that the thing will just be over. Is that how we meet human suffering as Christians, just by saying, well, I just command that suffering to end? Reminds me of, of the story in the Gospels that's known as the Good Samaritan. And we know that uh, in the story, a person was waylaid by robbers, beaten, and left on the side of the road. And ultimately, a Samaritan who was frowned upon, looked down upon at that time, came by that guy. And he looked at the guy who was suffering. He'd been beaten. And uh, if you remember the story, he just kind of breathed on the guy. (sighs) He said, here's the wind of God. Get better. He said, I prophesied that you're better. He said, I condemn your wounds. I command you to just get better. And the guy got better. Oh, wait, that never happened. Maybe that's what Kenneth Copeland thought was going to happen. But that's not what happened. That's not the way that Jesus teaches us to, to act when we are faced with human suffering. What actually happened was that in a very practical way, the Samaritan took care of the guy's needs. He dressed his wounds. He brought him, got him a place to stay and paid for it. And you probably know the story. When we're faced with human suffering, the solution is not to spiritualize it. And that's a problem that that we've seen a lot, that we see a lot in the church. We think the problem is to spiritualize material problems. And now things can happen, again, I believe in the spiritual realm that can affect the material realm. When there's somebody who's suffering, that's sick, that's whatever, suffering whatever way, prayer is always a great thing. It's always good to pray for someone. But if you just pray for someone, or if, you, or even worse, if you just prophesy that the person is better and they're not better, and you don't do anything to help them, it's not following Christ. So I've looked in the case of Kenneth Copeland. Maybe he's doing something else. Maybe he's doing something practical and pragmatic to actually meet the needs of people during this time. I looked. I couldn't find anything. I hope he is. Maybe he is. But we can't continue to spiritualize the physical, material suffering of people who either are dealing with this illness, COVID-19, or people who are homeless, people who are hungry. If we just say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray about it. It's not good enough. Look in, in the rest of the New Testament, and it addresses that mindset. It's not good enough. So for those of us out there as who are Christians, maybe we, we wouldn't go so far as Kenneth Copeland has, has just gone. We can nevertheless learn a lesson from what he's doing, from the absurdity of, of what he's doing. And that lesson is, it's not good enough to spiritualize the physical, material suffering of people that we're around. It's not enough just to say, I'll pray for you. We have to be active. We have to be working to alleviate suffering. We do that through political means. We do that through whatever means we can. Next, we're going to talk about the death penalty. Death penalty is something that has gotten uh, mixed views, even within the church. So we're going to talk a little bit about the state of the death penalty right now and 
what it should be, what should be the attitude or the approach from a person who is seeking to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You'd be forgiven for not realizing actually that the death penalty has been in the news lately because there's been other things going on that have dominated the headlines. But the situation right now is this. The federal government has not executed anybody since 2003 currently. That's 17 years. Last year, I believe it was summertime, 2019, Attorney General Barr restored executions. So we do have people who are on death row, who are federal prisoners on death row, waiting to be executed, but we weren't executing them. So, for example, one, one of these guys is Jokar Sar- Sarnayev, who was one of the Boston bombers. He's on death row, federally. So they weren't executing people, but but Barr decided that we got to execute people again. So so Barr restored executions, but he was hindered by litigation that was being held up in the courts. Judges ruled, uh, or a judge ruled in November, that the injection procedure that they were going to be using is not authorized by federal law. So that that put a stop to it, and blocked the executions. Just this week, just earlier this week, and you probably didn't even hear about this, but it happened just earlier this week, that was overruled by a higher court, so that cleared out one of the obstacles, and so now we're a little bit closer to federal executions being carried out once again. As far as popular opinion, 56% of the population in the U.S. currently supports the death penalty. So 56% support the death penalty. Last I saw, 70-something percent of the U.S. were people who professed Christianity. So I think it's safe to say there's a lot of Christians that support the death penalty. And we, we know that just anecdotally as well. At the same time, there's been some positive movement on the state level. Uh, last month, Colorado... Uh, ended executions, ended capital punishment, and that made it the 22nd state to have done so. So most states do still have capital punishment on the books. In some states, they have it on the books, but it's not really used. In some states, it is more so used. So what about the church on this issue? Again, the church has been mixed over time on this issue of capital punishment. So Augustine, he was an important church father and and probably one of the most important theologians for as far as giving shape to modern uh, theology and to modern approaches, Christian approaches to politics and government. Augustine said the state can do it. Augustine affirmed the state's right to kill, to execute. So here's what he said. I'm quoting Augustine. This is from his The City of God. He says, the same divine law which forbids the killing of a human being allows certain exceptions. As when God authorizes killing by a general law, or when he gives an explicit commission to an individual for a limited time. Since the agent of authority is but a sword in the hand and is not responsible for the killing, it is in no way contrary to the commandment, thou shalt not kill to wage war at God's bidding 
or for the representatives of the state's authority to put criminals to death according to law or the rule of rational justice. So Augustine says it's fine. He says, yes, you can, you can kill people if you are functioning as a arm of the state because it's not really like you're doing it. You're, you're just kind of a, an intermediary for God's, um, the execution of God's, God's justice. Some people later on actually utilize the death penalty themselves, people in the church. So, for example, uh, Calvin, John Calvin, a Genevan reformer, he was known for his role in the execution of Michael Servetus, who was considered to be a heretic at the time. Uh, Calvin was part of that. Servetus wound up being killed. Capital punishment. So there is a tradition of the church that approves of the use of capital punishment. We can trace it uh, through Calvin to Augustine and maybe before Augustine. On the other hand, there's a strong tradition of the church that has opposed not only the death penalty, but all violence, all use of force in any way. And uh, more lately, actually, the Catholic Church has been coming around to this way of viewing it. I was looking at the catechism of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic the catechism of the Catholic Church has changed a few times over the years when it comes to this issue of the death penalty, capital punishment. So this is what the catechism said in 1992. I'm going to read the relevant sections that are relevant to this issue of capital punishment. 1992 Catechism says, Preserving the common good of society requires rendering the aggressor unable to inflict harm. For this reason, the traditional teaching of the church has acknowledged as well-founded the right and duty of legitimate public authority to punish malefactors by means of penalties commensurate with the gravity of the crime, not excluding, in cases of extreme gravity, the death penalty. Goes on to say, if bloodless means are sufficient to defend human lives against an aggressor and to protect public order and the safety of persons, public authority should limit itself to such means because they better correspond to the concrete conditions of the common good and are more in conformity to the dignity of the human person. So in 1992, the catechism was open to the idea of capital punishment. It said that basically it's better not to. If you can still defend human life and protect the public, it's better not to. But in principle, there's, they're pretty open to the idea of capital punishment. So 1997, the same two sections in the catechism, they say this. Five years later. The efforts of the state to curb the spread of behavior harmful to people's rights and to basic rules of civil society correspond to the requirement of safeguarding the common good. Legitimate public authority has the right and the duty to inflict punishment proportionate to the gravity of the offense. Punishment has the primary aim of redressing the disorder introduced by the offense. When it is willingly accepted by the guilty party, it assumes the value of expiation. Punishment, then, in addition to defending public order and protecting people's safety, has a medicinal purpose as far as possible, it must contribute to the correction of the guilty party. Assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, 
the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. If, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means. And these are more in keeping, as these are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity with the dignity of the human person. Today, in fact, as a consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm without definitively taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are very rare, if not practically non-existent. So already by 1997, the Catholic Church was saying, that it's very, very rare, almost to the point where there's no justifiable time for capital punishment. So even more recently, 2018, the language of the catechism was changed again, and it says this, recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial was long considered an appropriate response to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time, do not deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the church teaches in the light of the gospel that, quote, the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, unquote, and she works with determination for its abolition worldwide. And to that I say, what took you so long? They say in 2018, now we understand that the dignity of the human person is not lost when they commit a crime. It shouldn't have taken 2018 years to figure that one out. It's pretty simple. But it did. And I'm glad that they got to that point eventually. So the position now of the Catholic Church, in short, through a lot of uh, ups and downs and twists and turns over the years, the Catholic Church now says they don't believe in the death penalty. That's what the catechism says. And that it's going to work to abolish the death penalty worldwide. And I think the Catholic Church is exactly right. And all the people who have held that position on the issue over the years are exactly right. So what's the argument for that? Well, the argument, first of all, against that is doesn't the Bible command us to execute capital punishment on those who commit certain crimes. So there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament that you could point to that do, that do say that. To which the answer is, of course, those were the laws given to the civil government of Israel. And unless we're willing as the as United States government or Western governments or modern governments, wherever they may be, to enforce all the laws that God 
put into place for the civil government of Israel, there's no justification to keep enforcing that law. Some would say, well, even in the New Testament, there seems to be a suggestion that it's the role of the state to execute judgment and, and perhaps even to execute criminals. And so one text that people would point to on that is uh, Romans 13. So Romans 13, 4, Paul is speaking in the context of the civil government, and he says this, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So a lot of people would say, there you go. It's not just Old Testament. There's also New Testament justification and even command that we execute God's judgment, that meaning the civil government execute God's judgment and be a vessel of God's wrath, which it would make sense, you know, God's wrath against someone who kills someone. If we're really serious about executing the wrath of God against that person, uh, God's pretty mad when somebody kills somebody. So maybe we should kill him because we're meaning the civil government, because we are vessels of that wrath. And to that, I would say it's not a good argument because Paul is being descriptive and not prescriptive. Paul's not giving instructions for what the government should do or what we should ask our government to do as much as he has simply saying that this is what the government does. So back in Paul's day, the government was doing this, that was executing people. And Paul saw in executions that were done on people who had committed crimes, who were legitimately criminals. He saw God using the government as a vessel of his own wrath and his own judgment. That has absolutely nothing to do with what the government should do today or what we should ask of our government or what we should push for our government to do or what we should do if we find ourselves in a position of authority when it comes to civil government. God uses all kinds of things, all kinds of people to execute his wrath and execute his judgments. We know he used Nebuchadnezzar to execute a judgment against Israel Does that mean that what Nebuchadnezzar did to Israel was a good thing? Of course not. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, what he did against Israel was a bad thing. But God uses even bad things to effectuate his purposes, to carry out his judgments. So the fact that Paul is making this descriptive observation about what the government did in his time does not really have anything to do with what the government did should do, what we should push for the government to do. What does have implications for what we should want our government to do is the gospel. And the gospel tells us that because of our sins, we were criminals. We deserved the death penalty, spiritually. And yet God didn't give it to us. God didn't sentence us to eternal death. Rather, he took that eternal death upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ and forgave us 
our sins. As the Bible says, mercy in the gospel, mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over punishment when it comes to our relationship with God. And so if we're serious about living out the implications of the gospel in every aspect of our lives, even the political aspect, we should not want our government, we should not ask our government to kill people for committing crimes. We should want those people to receive the same grace that we have received, which means at the very least that they not be killed. Finally, I'm going to talk today about Carl Barth. In uh, each podcast, we're talking about a person who represents the Christian left. And in doing that, we're, we're trying to normalize this idea that there is such a thing as the Christian left. Because many people, especially in America where we live, uh, they think those things don't go together. I think Christian equals being on the right. And so we're trying to bring to you stories uh, and profiles of the lives of these people who have been committed and devoted to Jesus Christ and for that very reason have found themselves on the left. And so today we're talking again about Karl Barth. Uh, Barth was a Swiss theologian. He's a person that's near and dear to me. I spent most of my time in the academic world reading Barth and writing about Barth. Lived from 1886 to 1968 from Basel, Switzerland. Early on in his life, he was a, a pastor in Switzerland. And when he was a pastor, he was called the Red Pastor. He was called the Red Pastor because he had his association with the left. So he was pastoring at one point in this Swiss town called Safenwil. And while there, he joined the Social Democratic Party, which at that time, that was the furthest left you can go. And he was active in that party's left wing. So he's in the left wing of the left party. He himself established three unions. He organized strikes and he served as a speaker for the party. He traveled around and speak for uh, the Social Democratic Party. He wrote a commentary while he was pastoring there in Safenwilm that was called, uh, it was this commentary on the epistle to the Romans. So like commentators do, he went through Romans and, and commentated on the text of Paul's letter. And this commentary was revolutionary among theologians of his day. The regnant paradigm theologically of the time in Europe what was, was what was called theological liberalism. This was the ideas and the theology propagated by people like Friedrich Schleiermacher and others. And Barth's Epistle to the Romans uh, was an attack implicitly, maybe at points explicitly, against theological liberalism. He sought to revive some of the insights of the reformers of, of Luther and of Calvin. And that 
process and that uh, goal of reviving those insights in a way that was relevant for the modern day and moved theology beyond the problems that he perceived in liberalism, that would take up much of the rest of his career. So after Romans, he was invited to become a professor in Germany, and he spent the rest of his life as an academic theologian in German universities and then back in Basel, Switzerland. He was in Germany during the time when Hitler was in the ascendancy, and there was a time in which professors were required to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler. Uh, Bart refused to do that, and because he was a Swiss citizen, he was essentially forced to leave Germany, and at that time he went back to Switzerland uh, again to where, where he spent the rest of his career in Basel as an academic Bart was a socialist in some form or another for his entire career. He's known as the theologian who did more than anyone else, again, to overcome liberalism and to usher in a new state of affairs in the theological world. But it cannot be forgotten that he was a socialist. Now, again, as with other people, there's debate over his legacy and people uh, want to say, well, now he wasn't really a socialist. People want to say that uh, even more so that his socialism was limited to his early career when he was a, a pastor in Safinville in his earlier days, because his socialism at that point was undeniable. So they want to say he was a socialist then, but as his career went on, he, he left it behind. And that's not true. Uh, it's been demonstrated, it's been argued, uh, among others, by George Hunsinger, wrote a book called Karl Barth and Radical Politics. He demonstrates and argues that it wasn't true. Barth did, in fact, um, become more of a dogmatician later on in his career, more of an academic theologian. But he actually said this, he said, I decided, as he looked back on his life, he said, I decided for theology because I felt I needed to find a better basis for my social action. I want to read a few quotes from Bart over the years. This man who was on the left and a Christian. At one point he was speaking to uh, a group and he said this, he said, and now to my socialist friends who are present, I have said that Jesus want, wanted what you want. He wanted to help those who were least, that he wanted to establish the kingdom of God upon this earth, that he wanted to abolish self-seeking property, that he wanted to make persons into comrades. Your concerns, speaking to socialists, your concerns are in line with the concerns of Jesus. He said, real socialism is real Christianity in our time. In a 1911 speech uh, called Jesus Christ and the Movement of Social Justice, he laid out his views in great detail. One of the things he did in this speech that he made, he, is that he took on the idea that's really common even today, that Jesus is above the political fray, so to speak. So a lot of people will say, you know, which, which uh, party is Jesus a part of? Is he a Democrat or is he a Republican? 
And the right answer, that according to most people, is neither. He's he's not a he's not either one. He's above it. He is, after all, God. So he's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. And there's some truth in that, of course. Of course, Jesus is not literally a Democrat or a Republican in the sense of modern-day American politics. And Bart said the same thing in his speech in 1911. He said, obviously, Jesus isn't literally a Swiss social Democrat. Of course not. Doesn't make any sense. It's anachronistic, et cetera, et cetera. But that's overly simplistic. It's overly simplistic to say Jesus is not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not a capitalist. He's not a socialist. Therefore, Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with where we come down. Therefore, following Jesus has nothing to do with being a part of any of these aforementioned movements. Obviously, he's not a Republican or a Democrat. Obviously, he's not a social Democrat of 20th century Switzerland. But Bart said, he said this. He said, of course, that's the case. He said, but we want to demonstrate the interconnection that exists between what is eternal, permanent, and general in modern social democracy and the eternal word of God, which in Jesus became flesh. So he's saying, yeah, of course, Jesus is not a a Swiss social Democrat. But there are eternal principles in Swiss social democracy. There are permanent general principles in Swiss social democracy that have an intrinsic connection to Jesus Christ. Bart sought to lay out what this connection was. Um, and one of the things he said, he said, what Jesus wanted and what socialism is, is a movement from below. So that's a connection. What socialism is about is, is fighting for those and helping the, those to fight for themselves who find themselves on the low end of the totem pole socioeconomically. And this is what Jesus did. When Jesus came into the world, he wasn't born in a palace, wasn't born into a rich family. If he believed in free market trickle-down economic approaches, then he probably would have. He would have said, oh, I'm going to influence the influencers of culture, the kings and the princes. I'll help them first see the light and they'll help everybody else. But he didn't. Jesus wanted to work from the bottom up. He came to the poor or at least the middle class, depending how you view Joseph and Mary and their socioeconomic condition. And so that's a connection between him and socialism. The belief that we have to look first to those who are at the bottom and that a movement worth having starts from the bottom and works its way up. Bart went on in this uh, speech in 1911. He took on the argument that, again, this argument's made a lot today, that socialism deals with external things and Jesus deals with internal things. And if you've been around American churches, American Christianity especially, but it's not just in America, you'll have heard things like this 
before. Like, yeah, politics is great. Politics is, is, is okay, but it's really not what Jesus was on about. Jesus wanted to bring an internal spiritual transformation to people because that's what's most important. And as far as ameliorating or bettering their social condition, their physical material condition, he didn't really care about that. And so it's okay to be a Christian and to be apolitical. Or it's okay to be a Christian and and just believe whatever you want politically. Because there's no bearing uh, from what Jesus said upon our political life. And Bart said that this argument in this 1911 speech he made, he said that this argument is part of a broader failure of the church to understand the connection between the spiritual and the material. There's a way that we often uh, categorize things. Oftentimes you categorize things into spiritual versus material. And we think on one side is the spiritual And that's where angels are. That's where our soul is. That's where our spirit is. That's where God is on the spiritual side. And then on the other side, you got the physical side. That's where our bodies are. That's where animals are. That's where everything that we can see is on the the material side. So we break everything down between spiritual and and physical or material. And having done so, then we, we say, the right thing to say is, the spiritual side is more important. That's what God cares about. That's what we should care about. That's what we need to care about. And the point Bart made in this speech is that that's a really bad way and a really unbiblical way of breaking down reality. The most fundamental distinction in reality is not between spiritual and physical according to Christianity and according to the scriptures. The most fundamental way of breaking down reality is between creator and creation. And within creation, there is, of course, a distinction between spiritual and material. But the whole created world, both spiritual and material, is the created world of God. And so what's important is not that we prioritize spiritual over material. What's important is that we prioritize God over all those things which are created, both spiritual and material, and seek to see the will of God done in that realm. In other words, ultimately what this amounts to is it's not right to say that God just cares about the spiritual The spiritual affects the material. The material affects the spiritual. God is the creator and cares what happens with his creation in general. We pray thy will be done. And that is supposed to apply to in all the created world on earth. Physical creation, spiritual creation. We want to see God's will be done in all of it. And so it's a bad argument to say, you know, you can be a Christian and not political. Or you can be a Christian and believe whatever you want politically, that there's no bearing, your faith shouldn't have any bearing on, on your politics. You can go either any way that you want. God is the God of all the created world. He's the God of politics and the political realm. 
just as surely as he is the God of the churchly ecclesiastical realm and all the other things that we associate more with spirituality. And so we need to see the will of God done. We work to see the will of God done in the material world just as much as in the spiritual world or what we define as such. What God says, what the gospel indicates as implications for your political life and for my political life. That's the point that Bart was making. Another thing in this 1911 speech that Bart took on was the idea of private property. And to many of us, especially, uh, again, in the West, this idea of private property is like unassailable. It's untouchable. It's inconceivable to believe anything other than, to many of us, that private property is an absolute right. And Bart noted that in 1911, even in his own context in Europe, and he, and he said that. He said, most people that are around right now at our time and place, they don't even conceive of the fact that maybe private property is not an absolute and unassailable right. And in fact, he said this, I'm quoting him. Bart said in 1911, Jesus's view of property is this. Property is sin because property is self-seeking. What's mine is absolutely not mine. What's mine is absolutely not mine. What did he mean by that? Um, did he mean it's, it's bad to have a house that you call yours and that you live in? I don't think he meant that. Um, I think what he, what he meant was this, was that the Gospels teach us, and the whole New Testament teaches us, that God and other people who are in need have a claim upon what we think of as belonging to us. And many of us, including myself, we need to change our thinking on that. Because we've been so taught, it's been so drilled into our heads, this idea of private property. What you have is yours. And yeah, it's nice to do nice things for people. It's nice to use your property to help people if you want to. If you so choose, it's a good thing to do. But if you don't, nobody can hold it against you. Why do we believe that? Does that conform to the ideals of the New Testament? Or does not the New Testament seem to say, that whatever the government might say, whatever the state might say, those things which you consider to be yours and yours alone, God has a claim on those things. They're actually his. And by extension, does it not also seem to imply that those things that you think of as your own, your house, your car, whatever you got, that those who are poor and those who are in need have a claim on those things. Bart seemed to think that it did. I think it does say that. At the very least, I'd ask you to, to think about that question. Why are you so sure that private property is an absolute right in the eyes of God from the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of the gospel? So that was 1911. And again, so Bart's clearly, he's full socialist, 1911. 
He's all the way to the left. He doesn't believe in private property, really, uh, in any strong sense. That's why they called him the Red Pastor. And again, some people say, well, yeah, that was back in the day. That was in the days of Bart's youthful idealism. And you've heard that saying that, that basically says that if you're young and a capitalist, you don't have a heart. If you're old and socialist, you don't have a brain. That's what a lot of people say. And so a lot of people kind of seem to apply that to Bart in, in a sense and say, yeah, Bart was a youthful idealist when he was a pastor in Saffinwill. He was the red pastor. He's on the left. He was, he was starting labor unions. He was uh, preaching against private properties and absolute right, et cetera, et cetera. But then he grew up. And then he matured. Then he became more of a serious thinker, more of the theologian, more of the academic. And then as some people tell it, uh, he became, you know, a Reaganite, essentially. They don't go that far. But that he came to the right, or that at least socialism stopped being uh, a major issue for his thought. Well, I already told you, um, he said, looking back, even later in his life, he said, the reason I went to theology was to find a better basis for my social action, by which he meant socialism. That's where the social action was. In 1959, an East German pastor, so this is after uh, Germany was divided into East and West, an East German pastor asked Bart if he should pray for the abolition of the communist government of East Germany. Should I pray that the East German communist government falls? And Bart said, you better be careful. This is what he said. He said, be careful because that prayer might be awfully answered so that some morning you would wake up among those Egyptian flesh pots as one obligated to, quote unquote, the American way of life, unquote. So 1959, he, uh, towards the end of his life, he was certainly not willing to say that capitalism was better even than East German communism, or at least capitalism as it found its expression in the quote-unquote American way of life. In the Church Dogmatics, which was written again later on in his career, after his days in, in, as a pastor in Switzerland, he urged the Christian community not to, quote, participate in the great self-deception, unquote, of capitalism. He wrote in Church Dogmatics 3-4 that the command of God is, quote, self-evidently and in all circumstances a call for counter-movements on behalf of humanity and against its denial in any form, and therefore a call for the championing of the weak against every kind of encroachment on the part of the strong. 1967, a year before he died, he wrote a letter to Eberhard Bethke, which said, uh, in, in which he spoke of, quote, the outlook which I presuppose without so many words and emphasized merely in passing, namely ethics, co-humanity, a servant church, discipleship, socialism, movements for peace, and throughout all these politics. So till the end, Bart was a socialist, resisted Hitler, resisted theological liberalism, 
and did so all out of a deeply rooted Christocentrism devotion to Jesus Christ. And another thing that he did out of this devotion to Jesus Christ was to be a socialist, was to push for social change, to seek to come to the aid of those who were at the bottom when it came to the socioeconomic spectrum. So for us today, Bart is a less known person. We talked last time about MLK, who, who we all know, or have at least heard of. Many haven't heard of Bart, but Bart, I hope you've heard of him now, and uh, I know you have, if you've been listening. And Bart is a hero of the Christian left. Bart dispels the notion that you can't be a Christian on the left. And Bart makes you think hard, in fact, about whether you can be a Christian without being on the left. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope you stay safe. Be back again with you soon.